Obviously, we're walking through the book of Luke. That's, that's what we're doing uh, as a church right now. We're gonna do that for quite some time. We'll have some rest stops along the way. Uh, we, we began this thing back during the season of Advent. Uh, that works really well, pragmatically speaking, to launch the book of Luke as we get to sit with uh, the stories of the births of Jesus and John the Baptist around Christmas time. And since then, we've moved into the adolescent years of Jesus's life and on into the anointing and coronation ceremony of heaven's priest king, going back to the baptismal waters with John the Baptist. This morning's passage brings us uh, into the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry, which we're gonna sit with for a really long time, coming off of the heels of that 40-day experience in the wilderness. Much of the story to come taking place in, in Galilee, that is until Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem to die. We'll get to that turn in chapter nine, verse 51. But everything leading up to that Jerusalem shifting moment is essentially our spring sermon series. The ministry of Jesus in Galilee, that's where we're gonna sit for the next few months. Much of, of which, as we'll see, is actually an outworking of what takes place in this morning's very passage. If you pick up in verse 14, we're told that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Back in chapter three, we saw that coronation ceremony. We saw that anointing ceremony of Jesus, the fullness of the Holy Spirit and his anointing power descending upon Jesus like a dove, followed by the Spirit leading Jesus out into the wilderness, sustaining him in the midst of hunger, in the midst of temptation. We now see that very same Spirit of God empowering Jesus's ministry as his Spirit-filled teaching throughout the region of Galilee leads many to glorify him to which amazingly, Luke chooses to devote just two brief verses. I mean, he could have easily expounded on some of the things that, that Jesus did and said in, in those Galilean synagogues and, and regions in giving us some sort of indication as to what it was that caused people to marvel at Jesus. But he doesn't do that. Rather, he chooses instead to frame the ministry of Jesus with the story of that which happened in Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. If you look at verse 16, Luke says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Right? Jesus was accustomed to going to church. If you wonder, should I go to church on Sundays? Well, Jesus did. If Jesus needed to, <laughs> we probably should as well. In this particular Sabbath, no different, except that it is different in one sense, namely that Jesus has established himself as an itinerant minister, a man competent in the scriptures at this point in his life, as we saw in his wielding of the word of God in the midst of his wilderness temptation, so that as a result of his growing reputation, Jesus enters the synagogue in his hometown and is invited to read from the scroll of Isaiah as was customary for a visiting rabbi to do, to read from the scriptures. We don't know whether Jesus requested that particular scroll or just so happened to be the next one on the lectionary calendar. What we can surely say is that God meant for the words of the prophet Isaiah to be read that day in the midst of a crowd who had been with Jesus for years, for decades. And we're told in verse 17, and James just read these words, he, Jesus, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is pretty fascinating to consider. Hebrew scrolls didn't come with with any sort of chapter markers in Jesus's day. No verse markers, not even so much as punctuation, which gives you some indication as to Jesus's familiarity with the Bible. He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah to the places that we now know of as Isaiah 58 and 61, and he reads aloud the prophetic declaration of the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah who, who would come in the anointing of the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and those oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's favor. You see where this is going, right? Verse 20 tells us, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. After reading from the scroll of Isaiah, Jesus sits down to preach as was the custom of his day. Not not only the first publicly recorded sermon in Luke's gospel account, but the shortest sermon, get this, recorded in all of the Bible. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, sermon over, let's pray. Perhaps the, the shortest sermon recorded in all of the Bible because that one single statement is filled with absolute wonder as Jesus declares himself to be the very fulfillment of the passage that he's just read. The Lord's anointed having come to preach good news to the poor, the emphasis being on a moral and spiritual poverty, though that often goes hand in hand with those who are financially without as the rich are oftentimes unaware of their neediness, right? Jesus having come to proclaim good news to the destitute, the needy, the poor in spirit, as as we Uh, Hear the language of in the Sermon on the Mount or Luke's version, the Sermon on the Plain. We'll get there soon enough. Jesus having come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the oppressed, to set imprisoned spirits free, free from bondage to money, as we'll see in the story of Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19, free from bondage to Satan, as we'll see in the healing of the Gerasene demoniac, Luke chapter eight, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Those just a couple of examples of Jesus bringing liberty to the captives as told in Luke's gospel account. And then there's the recovering of sight to the blind, which of course, of course we see it in the physical sense, right? In the healing of the blind beggar on the road to Jericho, Luke chapter 18, one of the many instances of Jesus bringing physical sight to the blind. And yet we also know that Jesus came to open the spiritual eyes of blinded sinners that they might see in his glorious face the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And then there's the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor, verse 19, hearkening back to Leviticus chapter 25, the year of Jubilee. The Jubilee was a year when slaves were set free from their servitude, a year when those in debt were released from their burdensome obligations. It was a do-over, so to speak. What Jesus is saying is that he's bringing the greatest of jubilees, the greatest of redos, setting sinners free from their enslaving servitude of sin, bearing the wages of their sin that they might be free from that burdensome debt and curse. All of these things, Jesus says, fulfilled in me. 
that much of what's to come in Luke's gospel account is the essence of Isaiah 61 and 58. As Luke shows us that Jesus truly is the messianic fulfillment of those passages and gives us a better understanding of what that means, which means that we don't have to have all of the implications of Jesus's sermon fleshed out this morning because we're gonna see it on full display throughout the course of Luke's writing. All the social implications, the spiritual implications, the, the marriage of a both and over and over and over again throughout this great book of the Bible. So hang in there if you have questions. But for now, suffice it to say, the crowd responds, verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? At first, the, the response of the crowd seems favorable. They marvel at Jesus's teaching try to get their heads around the fact that this is the carpenter's son from up the road. The trouble, as Jesus will go on to reveal, is that they see him as the son of Joseph, but not the son of God. In the sobering words of one commentator, the people enjoy the sermon, but they don't see the savior. That's incredibly sobering because that happens all the time in spaces like these. Such a familiarity with Jesus like the hometown crowd in Nazareth that we fail to truly see and savor him as our savior, as our king, as our greatest treasure. That's the aim of a sermon, by the way. It's not that you walk away loving the sermon, it's that you walk away loving Christ. Verse 23, Jesus responds to that. And he says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. The crowd's aware of, of Jesus's reputation as a healer, having heard of the many things he performed up the road. And yet there's, there's this sense of, of both distrust and self-entitlement, that those two can coexist very well together. Distrust, as, as evidenced in the proverb, Jesus's quotes, or Jesus quotes, physician, heal yourself. In Jesus's day, uh, medical professionals peddling remedies were met with an air of skepticism, as you might imagine, so that people would say, heal yourself. In other words, you shoot the vaccine into your own arm first. Notice that they, they don't say what you did at Capernaum do here, rather what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs. Crowd wants proof, they don't believe which is why according to Mark's gospel account, Jesus could do no mighty work there except to heal a few sick people as he marveled at the unbelief of most in the crowd. There's a similar attitude in thinking today, I think it's fair to say, as many people want something more than the gospel, more than the good news, some sort of proof, a financial fix in the midst of hard times, a work of healing in the midst of sickness or pain. Do what I ask God and then I'll believe conditional faith. Jesus perceives a, a skepticism on the part of the people and at the same time, a sense of self-entitlement, an expectation that he surely owes it to, him, to them, the hometown crowd, to perform his dog and pony show in the town in which he grew up. If you're gonna do it up the road, surely you owe it to us to do it here. Assuming your ability to do so actually checks out, Jesus. And Jesus responds with these words incredibly sobering. And he said, verse 24, truly I say to you, 
no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You remember the the message of John the Baptist in the wilderness going back a few weeks? And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. There there were Jews in the crowd in the wilderness with John the Baptist who expected those of Gentile descent to receive John's baptism as a means of, of ritual cleansing and being brought into the covenant community, an act of cleansing which they themselves thought they were exempt from because they were Jewish. They were already clean. They belonged to God's people already. Similarly, those in Nazareth lacked faith failing to believe that they were truly in need of the healing that only Jesus could bring, blinded by their their own self-sufficiency and pride, to which Jesus responds by taking them back to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, two Old Testament prophets who, like Jesus, were dishonored among their own people, both of whom God used to show grace to outsiders. A declaration of two things, not only that the gospel is for those who believe, who respond in faith, but the gospel is for both Jews and Gentiles. The first story being the story of a a dying widow as told in 1 Kings 17, where the word of the Lord came to Elijah, commanding him to go to Zarephath in the midst of a famine where he would meet a widow who would feed him. And we're told that Elijah did as the Lord commanded. And upon arrival, he encountered a widow at the city gate, gathering sticks, kindling in in, in preparation for a final meal for herself and her son before their anticipated death by starvation. That's the backdrop of this story that Jesus tells. Elijah's response to the woman as she's gathering sticks for that final fire, that final meal. Do not fear, Elijah says, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of the flour and oil and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And we're told that the woman hoarded her last meal and gave nothing to Elijah. Now that's not where the story goes. Told that the woman did as Elijah commanded and the Lord provided a supply of flour and oil until the end of the famine. God made good on his promise as he always does. In other words, the woman had faith. She had come to the end of herself. Unlike those in that small town synagogue in Nazareth who were blinded by their own self-sufficiency and pride. The second story having to do with Naaman the leper as told in 2 Kings chapter five, where the commander of the Syrian army, one of Israel's most hated enemies, mind you, was sent by the king of Syria to be cured of his leprosy by the prophet Elisha, to which Elisha responded by commanding Naaman to wash in the waters of the Jordan River seven times that his flesh might be restored and that he might be made clean. Naaman's response, 2 Kings chapter five, verse 11 and 12, but Naaman was angry 
And he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Perform some magic, Elisha. Do your dog and pony show. Naaman went on to say, are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be made clean? So he turned and, and went away in rage. Same kind of rage, we'll see it in the very next verses of Luke's gospel account that wells up in the hearts of those in the Nazareth synagogue. The obstacle to, to Naaman's healing, it was his pride, his unwillingness to do the humiliating thing. Thankfully for Naaman, his servants intervened because arrogant people need others to show them their blind spots convincing him to step into the less than impressive waters of the Jordan River, the very same waters, mind you, in which the Son of God would someday be baptized. The anointing and coronation waters of heaven's priest king. What, what is Jesus saying to the, the crowd in the Nazareth synagogue in bringing these two Old Testament stories before them? It's really simple. He's inviting them to come to the end of themselves. Like the widow of Zarephath, He's inviting them to do the humiliating thing of laying down their self-sufficiency and pride like Naaman the leper. Only then can they have any hope of true healing and freedom, true peace and joy, the true favor of the Lord to use the language of that Isaiah scroll. Sadly, that's not where this story goes. As Luke goes on to tell us in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, just like Naaman. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And Jesus calls out the self-sufficiency and pride of those he had shared a community with for years. And the crowd turns into a lynch mob and seeks to kill him because pride will go that far if it has to in order to keep from doing the humiliating thing of laying down its arms. So that here, we see one of the, the many fulfillments of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. As John says in his gospel account, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Praise be to God for the very next words that flow from John's pen, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that this morning's passage, which sets the stage for all that is to come in Luke's gospel account, it confronts us with the claims of Christ, offering us both a hope and a warning. It offers us the hope on the one hand of a God who lifts up the destitute and needy, who exalts the lowly and poor in spirit, empty pocketed sinners, who run to him, a God who sets prisoners free from the bondage of their chains, that they might walk in true freedom and joy, a God who gives sight to the blind, that they might have eyes to see and savor the wonder of his glory, a God who ushers in the joy of jubilee in setting sinners free from the enslaving servitude of their sin and bearing the wages of their sin, that they might be released from its burdensome debt and cursed, all of these things fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in no one else. 
the Lord's anointed having come. The weaving of God into the fabric of human existence that we might know something of his compassion, his care, his grace. A sovereign grace that's universal in scope in that it it reaches deep and it reaches wide to rescue lost sinners and restore that which is broken. That's the hope of this morning's passage. The warning is this. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. There are churches full of people who need to be one to Jesus. And that may be the case in this very room this morning. That there are many in the church who have never truly come to the end of themselves who've never truly come face to face with the hopelessness of their sinful condition. In the words of one commentator, those most in need of mercy and grace often know it the least. Morally upright and religious, they bristle at the thought of doing the humiliating thing. As do many religious people to this day who respond in anger when their pride and self-sufficiency are attacked. And in doing so, They drive Jesus out of their lives like the people of Nazareth. They cast him out. Here's the sobering thing. We have no indication that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth again. A reminder that there won't always be another opportunity to receive him. As the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day to trust in Jesus. Not tomorrow, not next week. My, my hope this morning, and we prayed this before the service, my hope this morning is that you would leave this place either trusting in Jesus or wanting to throw me off of a cliff rather than walking out of this room in apathy. I'll leave you with a story that I, that I read earlier this week in preparing to preach this morning's passage. And And it's a story that a few days later still has my heart pretty happy at the wonder of God's grace. There was a large, prestigious British church that had three mission churches under its care. And on the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches located in the slums of a major city were some outstanding cases of conversion, thieves, burglars, and others, but all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, this commentator says, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker, right? You got the picture in your mind? Knelt down at the communion rail side by side, a thief and a judge who put him in prison for seven years. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And the two walked along in silence for a few more moments. And then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. And the pastor nodded in agreement, a marvelous miracle of grace indeed. And the judge then inquired, but to whom do you refer, pastor? The former convict, the pastor answered. And the judge said, 
I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. And the minister, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. You see, the judge went on. It is not surprising that the thief received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus to be his savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy and hear yourself in these words because many of us, this is us. The judge said, but look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion and so on. I went through Oxford, I obtained my degrees, I was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm the greater miracle. What a miracle it is when God brings proud, self-sufficient, morally upright people to the end of themselves. It's that kind of wondrous miracle of God's sovereign grace that, that we in our moralistic, suburban, perceived goodness and success are most desperate for that we might believe on Jesus, that we might repent of our sin and trust in him, that we might keep trusting in him that we might know true healing and freedom, that we might know true peace and joy, and that the wonder of it all would would compel us to then go tell other beggars where they can find bread, to go tell other lepers where they can find healing. We're gonna continue to worship this God in just a minute, but I'm not sure our hearts are gonna be bought into it unless we come to the, the place for the first time or for the thousandth time of realizing that we have no business being in this building right now. That the fact that we're here is a miracle of God. (laughs) 